Hi everyone, I'm Gianna Panaritis and you're listening to the AgeWise Podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. Each week we hear from professionals in the field, plus people using media to address major health issues and challenge widespread assumptions about aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Award-winning documentary filmmaker Christine Herbie Summers has produced over 100 hours of documentary, dramatic, and educational programming for PBS since 1976. Her films have tackled everything from race in America to how early childhood shapes our futures and the health consequences of inequality. Rather than employing an alarmist tone, her films tend to pose the questions, why are things this way? And why do they have to be this way? She asks these same questions in her latest film called Coming of Age in Aging America. Here to talk about her film is Christine Herbie Summers, who joins us today from Boston. Christine, welcome to the AgeWise podcast. Why, thank you, and thank you for that lovely, concise, and accurate introduction. It was beautiful. Good. I'm glad, Thank you. I'm, I'm glad I got it right. So continuing on along those same lines, I know that before you started your company, Vital Pictures, you were a staff producer at WGBH Boston and at the Big Picture Company in Rhode Island. Here you've arrived at what you've said will be your last film. Why did you choose the subject of aging as your denouement? Well, at the time, I didn't know that it was going to be my denouement. We had a whole bunch of other films that we thought, oh, gee, this would be timely and interesting. One, in fact, that that had to do with making an argument for uh, mandatory service, national service, which, Mm -hmm. anyway, it's an interesting topic that people are starting to to talk about. So five years from now, which is how long it takes to make a film, it probably would have been quite timely. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, I didn't know it was going to be my last film. It took longer to make for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that in the middle of it, we we had to go off to it, our other big project on early childhood and finish that. But more salient to your question is that I started getting interested in this about five years ago via a very dear and long, long-time friend of mine named Dr. Dennis McCullough, who sadly has now passed. He is both a doctor's doctor and a patient's doctor. And over the course of his career, he moved from being a pediatrician to a geriatrician hmm. and wrote a phenomenal book called My Mother, Your Mother, about end-of-life and end-of-life care, end-of-life end of directives, and so on and so forth. So over the years, we talked about the contents of the book, but then he started putting it in this bigger perspective, which I think it's in the ether, this notion that, oh my gosh, there are a lot more older people around, mm-hmm. and then and then, and then, you, then people hear about the social security system being bombed out of existence by the boomers, and right. the boomers' needs, but it's a partial picture, and so I learned that it was a partial picture because our increased longevity including that of the boomers, is a permanent phenomenon. It's not as if it's just the boomers who are going to bankrupt Social Security, and besides, they wouldn't have anyway. But this is a phenomenon 
longer lives, longer productive lives, that is, is the first time in human history. Never, ever before in human history have so many people lived so long. Never, ever has, has the ratio of uh, longevity to low birth Mm-hmm. than what they are today. So we in the West are, are looking at a permanent shift in the shape of our demographic. But we are not ready for that shift. Mm-hmm. Almost every single one, in fact, every single one of our social institutions, from the built environment to uh, support policies to our educational system to our work environment, are geared to a life course that assumes that work will stop at 65 mm-hmm. and that whatever we've done to save Social Security or save for our own retirement need to last for a couple of years, but then the grim raper will call and uh, people die before their money runs out. That's not the case anymore, and it's not even a case of money. One of the pressing questions is, what do we lose by considering these new last 20 years of our lives. And remember, it's not just ours, it's our children's and their children's and their children. What do we lose by considering that merely a period of leisure or decline or essentially meaningless, that this is a time that is for, you know, occasional volunteering and a lot of television watching and... Mm -hmm. um, and maybe if you're lucky, if you've got enough money, travel that you've never done before. But then that only goes so, so far. And there have been some stunning data that have emerged. For instance, that the people who retire at what they think is the real retirement date, 65, 25 to 30% find themselves back in the workforce, if not full-time, at least salaried or paid two years later. They want to go back to work. Uh Some of them need to go back to work, but we are a healthier aging cohort than ever in human history. So we need to look at every institution in the country and see how we can change our fundamental understanding of the life course and uh, alter those institutions to support the life course. Mm-hmm. And I like the fact that you chose Social Security as an example of an outdated institution because it really, right. it's so easy for people to understand or get their brains around Social Security, but I think many people do tend to forget the fact that this was created in 1935 at a time when the average life expectancy was 62 for people to retire with a few years left with money. So you start out at the top of the film with uh, a teaser where Stanford professor Laura Carsonson is presenting her students with two different scenarios. And the students are asked, if you live to age 60, what do you want to do with the amount of time you have left? And if you live to age 100, what do you want to do with the time you have left? You were there and you saw how the students responded. Were you surprised and how did they respond? Well, I was as surprised as Laura was. <laughs> Basically, um, the students, when confronted with a, an extra two or three decades of life beyond 65, charted out their lives in pretty much the same way that we all think of our lives right now. You know, childhood until your 30s, 
30 to 65 were crazy families, so on and so forth. And then with the kids, when they thought about living to 100, added four or five more years of work before retirement, hmm. four or five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then, <laughs> and then they basically didn't have any idea what they were going to do. <laughs> Just like the rest uh, of us boomers. <laughs> um, but of course, those who saw a, a shorter lifespan saw much more work and pressure and family raising and, and so on and so forth in the middle of their lives. And then retirement and leaving the workforce as a welcome relief mm-hmm. from the kind of constant pressure of work and of course, in the case of Stanford students, building wildly successful careers. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Good luck with um, that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. So, as Dr. Carsonson said, it, it's a failure of imagination mm. and also a failure of our institutions to begin. It's a kind of chicken and egg sort of thing. Mm-hmm. If you can't imagine the changes, how can you do the changes? Right. Um, <laughs> And but the the changes themselves will help to galvanize the imagination. So uh, the kids talked about that a lot. I'm amazed at how interested kids are in this topic. Um, yeah, I know down. it's a real popular topic on campuses. I have interviewed other people who work in academia, and they've said this is quite a popular topic, which surprised me. Really. Yeah, I interviewed a gal, uh, Professor Laura Olson at Lehigh University, and she said that her course on aging is the most popular course she teaches among her students. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I think, you know, it was really interesting, too, because you profiled this, this, this guy named Jim Fox, who lives in Norcross, yeah. Georgia, which is undergoing its own rapidly aging community. And Jim is divorced, and he quit his job to care for his elderly mother. And he lives with his daughter. And it turns out she has some of the same concerns as he does. And she's quite young. Um, right. Well, he doesn't live with her yet. But oh, okay. Living, but okay. you're right. He, she has the same concerns. Okay. My larger question was, did you meet other young people? And I hate to focus on this, but they're the generation that's got to sort of help figure this out. Um, yes. It's not just up to us boomers. What sort of concerns did you find among other young folks that you interviewed? And can you talk a little bit about why you chose these two. Well, we actually had a scene that didn't make it into the film, a kind of roundtable conversation in the cafe with mm-hmm. the central location, the right. Norcross Cafe. And the kids were concerned. First of all, there was a young black man who was actually uh, in uh, a scene in the film who expressed the fear that and the knowledge the true knowledge based on data that African American longevity, especially for men, is quite different than it is yeah. for uh, white Americans yeah. and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and other ethnic mm-hmm. groups, including, mm-hmm. by the way, Latinos. So he questioned how much he ought to worry about it since he might not even make yeah. it that long. <laughs> well, that um, makes sense. <laughs> um, and then the students expressed a lot of concern, these kids who by the way, are not Stanford kids. They're They're they're, Norcross kids, right? They're Norcross kids. Norcross, Georgia. Yeah. They expressed the fear that they wouldn't be able to support a family, buy a home, save for retirement, and take care of their elders and take care of their children all at the same time in the middle of life. And they didn't have a solution for it. 
a lot of young people are scared about the availability of jobs, about social conditions generally Mm -hmm. that have nothing to do with an aging society, but everything to do with the kind of society that an unequal distribution of resources has, has brought about. And then kids have a have wonderfully dark humor. Uh-huh. <laughs> so there was one one young woman who said, "Oh, I don't know how rich I'll be when I'm older, but what I do know is that I'm going to be a really crabby, cranky, demanding old lady." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, it, it was it was quite charming, but. Uh, all of the kids express concern about their parents and their grandparents. I don't remember my generation being particularly worried about my parents' health, and certainly my grandparents died before I was 20. Mm-hmm. Not uncommon. But this generation seems to really worry about their parents and their grandparents. But I think they sublimate their own worry about their own futures. You know, they're 22, they're 23, they're 25. They're yeah. worried about their next job. So, mm-hmm. so their thinking is very short-term, but because they are among the first generations to actually live in close proximity or see two or three generations ahead of themselves, their parents, their grandparents, and their great-grandparents, many mm-hmm. of them, mm-hmm. their great-great-grandparents, they know that things are changing. Yeah, yeah, because we didn't really see our elders for that much longer. They just weren't around. Well, they died. They died, Um, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They died, again, before we were were of an age to be particularly empathetic or aware of what their circumstances were. So, again, I don't think this second group would be able to imagine any better than the Stanford kids what an extra two decades of life beyond what the current norm is would be. I love those kids. They were just, they were really great. So, yeah. Well, uh, can we talk for a, a little bit about some of the barriers to aging in place? I found it really fascinating that more than half of older Americans still live in the suburbs. What are some of the consequences when- of that? Well, let's remember that the suburbs were created and continue to be created for young families who want big houses to raise their children in. And this trend started as early as Levittown in the 1950s when there was a huge shortage Mm -hmm. of housing for returning vets and who wanted to start families. So now we've got bricks and mortar. And we've got concrete on streets, and we have no sidewalks because people in the suburbs use cars. And they use cars to get to basic necessities and to get their kids to school and so on and so forth. That pattern hasn't changed very much, but it's not a pattern that is sustainable for older adults. One line that is not in the film, uh, but uh, Scott Ball, who is an urban planner, said is, for older people and for the health of a socially connected community, we urban planners apply the toilet paper rule. And that is, how far do you have to go and how long does it take to get a roll of toilet paper? Hmm. Do you have to go to a corner store? Hmm. Do you have to go to a big shopping center? 
again, in a different time and place in, in the United States, there were small grocery stores. Right. Of course, a retail operation in which you could find those basic emergency <laughs> necessities. Right. Um, and, by the way, meet your neighbors along the way. And Scott talks about that as a very important dimension of a healthy life, and that is what he calls accidental encounters, uh, unplanned encounters. Mm -hmm. So meeting an acquaintance or a neighbor on the street as you're walking your dog or you are walking to your local toilet paper dispensary um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) makes a difference. You don't have to plan. You you don't have to schedule. And the quality and kind of uh, communication really, really, really changes when it's an accidental incident. Where are you going? I'm going to Sarah. Where are you going? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, there is this uh, vo- volunteer group that I go to, or I'm going off to work. I'm now working a couple of days. You are. It's a very different kind of discourse which contributes to social engagement. And if you remember at the end of the I was the just film, thinking about that. You're, you're going to reference <laughs> Professor Berkman's line. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's a great line. She says, well, you, why don't you share it? Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, she says the best antidote to death is life, which is, you know, being socially engaged, which is brilliant. I mean, I think that's just a great line. Right. Right. So that kind of provides an interesting segue to the idea of age-friendly cities and Mm -hmm. remaining engaged. I mean, in the city, in where I live, in the West Palm Beach area, I think it's Mm -hmm. a very age-friendly city. It's many generations. It attracts young people and older people. We still have issues because Florida, unfortunately, does not believe in supporting its older population through social services. The state of Florida has just, you know, kind of made that decision. Um, Oh, wow. Just really a shame and ironic considering that it has a very high concentration of older adults. But that's a whole other conversation. In the city of West Palm Beach, we have walkways along the lines of what you showed in Norcross, these long paths that connect suburban communities and give them views of downtown Atlanta, even. Um, They're doing some of that here in in West Palm Beach as well. And I find that really wonderful that, you know, people are doing this to fight sort of this uh, suburban isolation. Suburbia does cultivate forms of financial abuse and other forms of abuse of elders. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how suburbia cultivates this and how it affects the larger society? Well, for instance, now we have a character in the film named Norma. Now, Norma used to own her own home in a different city and wanted to come and live near to her children in the greater Norcross area. And for financial reasons and, and others, because the housing is expensive, and we know that, it, that it's expensive for mm-hmm. everybody, her son ended up building her a little apartment that, that she could live in. But now the kids are grown, and her, her grandkids are grown, and her son and her daughter work all day long. Mm-hmm. And there is no one on the street. There are no sidewalks. There's no one on the street, and she talks about how you don't get a chance to meet anyone. And so many suburbs were designed that way, and many suburbs were designed for the car. Um, Let's not forget the same time the suburbs were being built, 
the interstate highway system was being built. Right. And that is a legacy of, of the 50s. Now, most urban planners will say that it will take at least 40 years for suburban communities to begin to kind of turn the direction of their thinking. In the case of, for instance, Atlanta, Atlanta, as we describe in the film, still thinks of itself as a young city in the young, booming south despite the fact that they have the fastest-growing older population in the country. <laughs> Talk and, about heads and in the sand. Yeah. And making it worse. And so much of the planning and much of the thinking has to do with, oh, well, how can we you know, attract more millennials? Can mm-hmm. we start developing a tech incubator, et cetera, et cetera? Whereas the Atlanta Regional Commission, they did a cost-benefit study about the two populations, they found that an older population would bring into Atlanta four times the revenue that millennials. Wow. Stemming from what? From their own spending, Mm -hmm. from work within Atlanta, volunteer services, which are hugely valuable and can be monetized, to less defined things like they come back to Atlanta because they want to be near to their children who are living in the city and who have grandchildren. Daycare costs being onerous in the United States, many of them do daycare for their grandchildren. That, Mm -hmm. too, can be monetized not to mention the taxes that they pay, that they would pay if they purchased real estate or a condo, et cetera, et cetera. But that's a lot of money. And most cities are not thinking that way. They're thinking about older populations as a drain on their local economies because the thinking is that older people don't spend as much. Well, they don't, but they spend it on different things. And uh, uh, many of those different things um, have to have to do with buying things for their children and their grandchildren, and also going to restaurants, going to movies, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Which, even if you're just living on social security, you can do. Sure, I like this exploration that you went into. Talk about this correlation between immigration and aging. Again, oh, yeah. we have the Harvard professor Lisa Berkman says one of the reasons the U.S. isn't as, quote, old as other societies is that we've had a fairly steady influx of new immigrants who arrive young. So we have a workforce to support an older population. Talk about that. That's really fascinating. I didn't even really occur to me. (laughs) That makes total sense. Most people in their minds don't put the words immigration and aging society in the same sentence or even in the same paragraph. Uh, They seem like two completely different realms. But if you look at, and, and we do these kind of nifty, beautifully animated charts in the film, if you look at the economy of the worst is Japan because they have the longest longevity and the lowest birth rate. Their demographic curve, instead of being a pyramid, which is lots of young people and fewer older people at the top, really looks like the Seattle Space Needle. It varies with small cohorts of young, middle-aged, et cetera, and then this really large group of folks who are aging. Now, this makes for a very uncomfortably unstable economy and society. And Japan is not a high-immigration country. Let's go to another hotspot, which is China. Mm-hmm. Because of China's one-child one-child policy, mm-hmm. right, right. 
they are looking at a situation where by 2030, half the population will be over 65. That's, I mean, that's huge. That is massive. That's huge. Yeah. And it's one reason, it's actually the reason that the party and the government have now suspended the one-child policy because um, they know that uh, it's essential for there to be a young workforce in order to help support an older workforce. And really, this has been a social arrangement that is time-honored, that younger people help support older people. We can talk until we're blue in the face about uh, you know older people um, supporting younger people, and they do. The transfer between generation to generation, the dollar transfers are enormous, especially in the top 25% of, of the demographics. But the reality is that young people do need to support the very old. And that is how societies have, from the march of time, been organized. So China has got a real issue. Now let's take a look at Europe, Italy, and Germany. Less of a problem, in part because of their generous immigration policies and continually generous immigration policies. Now, uber-politics of the world may change that, sure. but both of them know that their demographic trends will not be sustainable. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to the issue of, in the United States, we do have a healthy influx of young immigrants. Our challenge is really to educate and support these populations rather than demonize them and send them home in order to keep what is still in the United States a fairly stable demographics. It's not pyramid-shaped anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's barrel-shaped. But that's really how immigration links to an aging society. And that's why immigration is really a, an important issue for us to understand and think about when we think about these large social transformations that we only see the tip of the iceberg of because that's all there is to see right now. Right, and that's um, the narrative that the media is creating. I mean, I hate to... I agree with you. ...poo-poo our own realm, but the, that's the fact. But going back right. to Germany for a moment, you have a really great example in the film of how the work environment in Germany differs from that of the American aging workforce. You use the lesson right. from BMW. And I love the fact that the productivity of the aging workforce now matches other lines, and this is good for younger workers, too. Well, talk uh, about that. The productivity of the mixed... Of the mixed um, line. Of the mixed assembly line, when you combine older people and younger people, is as good or better than the younger assembly line. And why is the film tries... There, there is so much more research um, that could support this, and we're not a book, we're a film. Right. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but adult cognitive and emotional capacity is different from younger emotional and cognitive capacities. And those differences, when combined, strengthen the workforce, strengthen almost every workforce in a variety of ways. For instance, Older Americans or older people have much better impulse control. Right, right. So, um, <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> Most <laughs> older Americans. <laughs> Present <laughs> occupant of the Oval Office, notwithstanding. <laughs> Sorry, that was a digression. <laughs> uh, but that makes total sense if if you look at the neuroscience literature. It takes maybe into our 30s and early 30s for that pathway between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex to kind of really take hold and help us with impulse control. But when you have a person like that on the team, things like kind of brainstorming and creative thinking, which may be stronger in younger people, is more possible because of the leavening effect of the presence of an older person. Hmm, that's um, I, now, workplaces have to be intentional about this. Yeah. And the example you cite about BMW, you know, they wanted to keep their older workers because they know that their older workers know stuff. You know, yeah. and have and they have skills that are very expensive to train young young people in. So they want to keep them, but you're building a BMW. You're on your feet. You're ratcheting car parts together, and even though we think that robots do it all, they don't. And this is hard work. So what happens when a company says, I want to keep these people, but I know that their bodies are <laughs> are having a rough time of it? Right. Well, in the case of BMW, they changed the flooring, so it's softer. They spent about $50,000, as one of our experts says. What is that, the price of one BMW? Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. The next one. So, <laughs> 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 they instituted yoga classes, more rest breaks, larger computer screens, different chairs that swivel and move and altered the ergonomics of some work sites. Now, that may not seem like a huge thing. So, for instance, in the hospital story that we tell. Which is another uh, great example. I love yeah. that one. Wellstar Hospital. Mm-hmm. Yep. You'd never really think about this. And I won't go into all of the changes that they made in the typical hospital room, but one of the changes that they made, and you just don't think about these things, is you know those easy chairs that are there to hang out, yeah, to hang out with the patient, right? And 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 the patients to start them mobile. Mm -hmm. Well, the way most of them are designed is the seat inclining backwards to the back rest, right? Right. Now, when you have an older person who's sitting in that seat and a nurse needs to come in and help that patient get up, the nurse has got an extra burden. Why? Because she is having to pull the patient up from a steeper decline in the patient's sitting posture. Right. So what they did to no detriment to comfort, what they did was help to design different chairs, chairs in which the seat does not incline backwards, but is either level or inclined slightly forward with a footrest, which can be pushed back by the nurse. And it's also much better for the patient's overall posture. And it's much easier for a nurse, especially an older nurse, but even younger nurses, to actually lift that patient out of that chair and back to their hospital bed. It, it, it all sounds very small, but it's those kinds of things compounded that fatigue people and basically encourage people to say, I've had it with this. My knees are going, my back is going, et cetera, et cetera. 
Right. So let's let's kind of wind this down a little bit. What do you want okay. viewers to take from this film? And how do you plan to use it? Will you be taking it on the road? <laughs> <laughs> um, to your to the first part of the question, I hope that what viewers take from this film is that there is a way to think about aging that does not have to do with just individuals, which is, you know, how do I eliminate wrinkles and so on and uh-huh. so forth, but really has to do with the society overall. Hmm. And to learn that we are an aging society and that these demographics are hugely significant and they're permanent. And therefore, an aging society is not just about old people. It's about everybody. And so this is kind of a big idea. I think, you know, people don't like to think about old people and aging. Um, (laughs) We're all going to get there (laughs) if we're lucky. (laughs) Yeah, if we're lucky. And that's a whole other question about why ageism persists as the most tenaciously held and deepest held bias of all biases. Mm-hmm. Which you which you present this in the film, more deeply held in racism, sexism, and homophobia. I did yeah. not know that. It's a more <laughs> deeply held bias than uh, well, any of those uh, things. You know, and, and, and it's, so, it's so kind of counterintuitive because we're all going to get there. Mm-hmm. So we are essentially cultivating uh, biases against ourselves. Anyway, mm-hmm. as to this going on the road, this will continue to be shown in various markets on PBS throughout the spring. So it's one of those check your local listings kind of PBS warnings. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we have found with all of our films is that Somehow they make their way into academia. So as to your point about young people being very interested in the topic, we have already got orders for the film, and we don't even have an order page yet. Oh, wow, that's <laughs> on, great. On our, on our website. Really it's great. really stupid. It's really, really terrible. But You're filmmakers, yeah. not marketers. <laughs> <laughs> but... And then the third way is the film will be shown, as all of our films have been, in public screenings uh, throughout the country. Now, we don't set those up. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're frequently called to give advice. There's an organizing toolkit on the website to help guide a good screening. Many of them we won't hear about, although this last week or so we've heard of a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And what is that website for folks listening to this, Christine? Well, for folks listening to it, it's www.com the aging america project all one word all lowercase.com okay and so i know this is your last film what's next for you you've been very open about the fact that you're are you willing to share <laughs> oh yes of course okay. i'm 68 and when i hit june i always kind of ratchet myself up until my next birthday my birthday is in december so oh, anyway you're a I'm, new 68 I'm, okay. I'm 68 and i've been making films for 45 years, and that's a long time. Wow, and that's awesome. So what's next for me is, dare I say this out loud, <laughs> but I, I did at a conference where I presented the film last week, I am enrolled, I was just accepted, to a very rigorous program in classical drawing and painting called the Academy of Classical Design in Southern Pines, North Carolina, and so that's what I'm doing. 
That is really exciting. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I don't know. You know, I don't know whether uh, your folks listening will will appreciate this, but you know, when I finished the film, I thought, "Oh, good, yay! I don't have to do these wrenching social issue films anymore. <laughs> they're they're just so hard." And, and Has that then, been a cross to bear for you? And then Trump gets elected, and I'm thinking, "Oh, oh wait no. a minute." <laughs> Well, maybe this um, is one of those situations that you portray in your film where you retire and then come back <laughs> into, uh, well, well, come back into we'll this do, filmmaking workforce. We'll see. We'll see. But I'm, I'm eager to live in a small town. I've been a city girl my entire life. And to really immerse myself in a very difficult process of classical design. Mm-hmm. Because filmmaking isn't hard enough, right? <laughs> <laughs> You just gotta climb that next Everest. Go, Christine. You know what? That's what my friends have said. They said, "Are you out of your mind? You know, why don't you do, you know just sort of take it easy?" But I just end up wasting time. I don't know. This is really what I've always wanted to do. Apart from being a doctor, I've always wanted to be a doctor. But hmm. probably too late for that. Wrong one. choices a long time ago. <laughs> Well, the rest of us benefited from your films. Um, do you have any last thoughts? Um, for folks listening, young and old, not to be afraid of this period of life. This period of life, these extra 20 years, are a gift. And they're a gift that science has given us, that uh, our country and our, our Western culture has given us. Use the gift well, and don't be afraid of the change. Fear dominates and fear paralyzes and people are going to grow old this is going to happen whether you do anything about it or you not do anything about it so better to do something about it and and get involved award-winning documentary filmmaker christine herbie summers her latest film which she produced and directed is called coming of age in aging america christine thanks for coming on the show and thanks for your wonderful wonderful work good luck in the next phase of your never dull life Thanks for being on the show. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been a a great pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. The AgeWise podcast is produced and mixed by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. You can find us on Twitter at hashtag AgeWisePodcast. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z podcast. And if you're so inclined, go to AgeWise.com and subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Rate us. I'm Jana Panaritis. Remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.